But my whole message to everybody is you don't have to wait till your CEO wants you to do it. Yeah. You can start today within your own team, you know, by just really thinking about how you're managing those moments, how you're talking about inequality, how you're getting people to share their stories, yeah. how you're educating your team on what the barriers are and how you're holding people accountable for removing those challenges. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Working Wife, Happy Life. This is your host, Bethany Baines. This has been a crazy week, a lot of anxiety, a lot of cancellations, a lot of adjusted lifestyles, and hopefully no major sickness for any of our listeners or your friends and family. I'm sure we probably know more as this episode is airing than I know currently. However, I want to share that because of the coronavirus outbreak, after this episode, we're going to be taking a bit of a hiatus on Working Wife Happy Life particularly because we do all our interviews live in New York City, which is not an option right now. So please make sure that you are subscribed wherever you listen to your podcasts and following us on Instagram at Working Wife Happy Life so that you're alerted when a new episode releases, hopefully soon. We have so many exciting guests lined up that we are aiming to reschedule as soon as possible. And I assure you that if this lasts longer than expected, we will start to do remote recordings to continue to bring our community the topics, insights, and compelling conversations that you've come to expect. So now, for today's episode, I had the honor of spending a few minutes with Michelle King during her whirlwind trip to New York City as she promoted the release of her incredibly insightful new book titled The Fix. Overcome the Invisible Barriers That Are Holding Women Back at Work. Her underlying message is, let's stop trying to fix women and start fixing workplaces. Hallelujah. Michelle is so incredibly well-researched, well-educated, and well-spoken on the topic of inequality in the workplace and why this is a problem for everybody, not just underrepresented groups such as women or people of color. This is a power-packed conversation. It's probably the quietest I've ever been. She is so informative, succinct, and insightful, while frankly also being so obvious. So enjoy this conversation with Michelle and take great care of you and yours, and we'll be back in a few weeks. So I, I want to back up for one quick second because you, obviously, I've been reading about you and you have had a really impressive career and also an extensive education. I think you actually have more degrees than mm. I have years of education. Oh, <laughs> um, that's funny. So can you just share with our listeners a little bit about your background and kind of because obviously we want to spend the bulk of the time talking about your message in your book, but what really kind of built you up to lead you here? You know, I've always just followed things that I'm interested in. Um, you know, people always say there's this idea that you've like had this goal and you've gone for it and reached it. And I, I feel like that puts a lot of pressure on people to have the answer as to what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know what they want to do. But mm-hmm. my advice is sort of follow the breadcrumbs of, you know, curiosity and kind of see where that takes you. And so for me, I started my career out in um, human resources. I got mm-hmm. a master's in industrial org psych. I was interested in how businesses worked. I've been interested in that my whole career. Um, and so started out working in that field and then, um, I kind of did, wanted to do a bit of a pivot, a career change sort of halfway through. 
and was interested in potentially being a journalist. So I went and did a postgrad in journalism and actually got a job as a business TV reporter. Oh, great. Combined both worlds. Um, And I did that for a little while in New Zealand on our sort of local national news channel and then um, moved to the UK where I then went back into sort of human resources and worked as an HR manager in oil and gas sector. Um, And with sort of the oil and gas mining sectors, they're heavy sectors, right? And you move around a lot. So with Mm -hmm. that, I got to work in places like Syria and Libya. And I lived in Australia. I've lived in Malaysia. I've lived in Houston, New York. So I've literally lived everywhere. And throughout sort of that career, I also wanted to double down and better understand organizations, how to make them work. Um, So did my MBA. And I just enjoy studying and working. I'm a researcher, so I enjoy understanding how things work. And it was through my human resources career where I started to notice this differentiator between men and women. Mm -hmm. And I started to see more inequality moments because when you're in human resources, you manage those moments. Mm -hmm. And you're often involved in like issues related to them, right? And so I started to notice even for myself that um, my male colleagues who were less experienced, less qualified, um, had lower performance ratings, were advancing at a higher rate than me. And I couldn't understand it. You couldn't put it down to any one thing. Um, I got told to just be patient, to just wait for mm-hmm. turn. Um, and that's when I, after the birth of my second child, when I was like, you know what, I need a career that's meaningful. I want to do something that changes this and solves this problem for myself, selfishly, but also for all women. I want to understand it, right? And so this was at the time when Lean In was still pretty popular. Mm -hmm. And um, so I I just started researching it and kind of got borrowed friends' library cards for university, got access to all these academic journals. And then I wrote a research proposal and submitted it for my PhD. And that's what sort of started that journey. Um, And it was very quick, you know, into researching it that I realized – you know, this whole line that we've been fed about fixing women, you know, like women needing to do more, be more to sort of advance in organisations that were never really designed for them in the first place is very damaging. Mm-hmm. And that actually we're fed all this lean in nonsense, but you, you know, you're really trying to fit to some sort of outdated ideal, what I call Don Draper from Mad Men, you know, this 1950s man. Um, we're all encouraged to live up to that. And that's what women fixing does. It tries to, you know, change the way women work to fit this ideal. And that doesn't work for any woman, but it really doesn't work for women of color because white Mm. women have their whiteness in common with Don. So it's easier for them to sort of match that prototype. So books like Lean In are really written for sort of privileged white women and they ignore the challenges that women of color face. And so that was my issue with the whole Lean In message. I get that it came at a time and a place when that was popular, but it's been very damaging, I think, to women because it's a form of like gaslighting. You know, Mm -hmm. what we're really saying is you're the problem. And we ignore all the ways the system's rigged and we tell you it's a meritocracy, even though it's not. And when you encounter these different barriers, I mean, my book outlines 17, you realize very quickly on that actually this game's rigged. And mm-hmm. the problem is we ignore that or we, as I say, we're in denial about it, right? And and that's what leads to this gaslighting. Yeah. And, you know, you see it play out in very detrimental ways for women in terms of their mental, emotional health, but also just in terms of their confidence to advance to senior leadership positions. I mean, within the first three years, women's confidence drops by more than 60%. In right. their ability and then we to, try to fix that. To fix it's that. like it's almost like healthcare, where it's you're fixing the symptoms constant. versus yes, the underlying issue. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's such a great analogy. That's exactly what this is. And so for me, with this book, I was trying to like you know open people's eyes. Like my main point was, hey, just just look at how broken it is mm-hmm. and how it doesn't work for women. It doesn't work for men. And actually, right. workplaces need us more than we do. So let's just own how it's broken. 
and let's hold leaders accountable for fixing it because ultimately yeah. they create these environments, right? So that was really the aim and what's driven sort of a lot of my work and research today. So as as we heard in there, you have a million degrees, but you've had kind of this North Star and this hunger for uncovering you know, what, what the root causes are and that kind of drives your motivation. And you talked about being a mom and wanting to have something that's more fulfilling, but also thinking like, how do we get to something that is so critical to actually, you know, repair and renew and rebirth versus, you know, just approaching it from a very tactical approach. And I, I, I what I love about your message in reading the book is that <clears throat> you're bringing into this we're getting away from necessarily the blame, which is where I think a lot of people shut down when they feel like, oh, there's inequality and it must be my fault. And I am very uncomfortable with that. So we're going to like kind of deflect and push, you know, activities or, or options or solutions in this other direction. Um, where you're coming from, my read of this is it's a much more positive conversation, not only about the issues, but about the opportunities and that this isn't, you know, any one singular gender's issue. There is one singular gender that is being disadvantaged. There are multiple intersectionalities within that gender that are being disadvantaged, you know, in a additive way. Um, but that this kind of affects everybody. And it's, and it's on everybody for us to uncover. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, you just brought up so many points that I wanted to dig into. Um, talk a little bit about the piece about women of color and how this is exceptionally detrimental for women of color and what can, um, you know, white women or what can organizations do to better support? Because I, I know this is a long window question, but stay with me because we are doing so many uh initiatives in this space in terms of trying to raise awareness and trying to talk about these topics and providing unconscious bias trainings. And before, you know, you go into do performance, you're given an unconscious bias debrief. Are these programs working? Like, what could we be doing better? So I think, you know, the challenge when it comes to Let's just start with tackling racism in workplace. And I say racism intentionally, and it's normally at this point that people sort of shift in their chairs and get pretty uncomfortable. But for me is, you know, we have to acknowledge how the more ways you're different from the Don Draper ideal, the more challenges you're going to face at work, right? And so a good example of that is, you know, for um, women of color, but specifically black women, you know, they don't just face um, racism in workplaces, they also face sexism, and they face a combination of the two, so gendered racism, you know, and, you know, that creates sort of unique experiences, right, at that intersection um, that are particularly challenging. And in my book, with each barrier, I kind of show how it's compounded by difference mm -hmm. and specifically, you know, with a lot of focus on race and how this shows up differently based on different ethnicities, different racial backgrounds. So we really see this compounding effect in workplaces. I think the challenge is we're blind to it. So we're, and we're blind to it because of our privilege. So, you know, for me, I'm a white woman and that gives me a certain amount of privilege because I have my whiteness in common with Don. And so even though it's hard for me, it's that much easier for me compared to sort of black women in organizations. And so my job as an ally is to understand black women's experiences of workplaces and not to necessarily, you know, I can just absolutely and I do invite them to share their experiences and want to understand it because it's a continual learning process. But I educate myself up front, right? Mm -hmm. I seek out information to understand those challenges and specifically what I need to do to 
disrupt those barriers, right? And sometimes it's speaking out, sometimes it's calling out the inequality when it happens, sometimes it's advocating, sometimes taking a back seat to make sure that other voices are heard, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes it's supporting, yes, and advancing. And so it's really, you know, without the understanding and in fact, without the awareness and without the understanding of what the barriers are, it's very hard to take the appropriate action. Mm-hmm. So right now, the reason diversity and inclusion initiatives don't work is because we have knowledge, right? We we know that women aren't in senior leadership positions. We know that, you know, um, that inequality is going to take a really long time, 202 years, according to the World Economic Forum, to be solved. But what we lack is understanding. I mean, how many leaders in your workplace can tell you how inequality works? And if they don't know how it works, we have no hope of solving it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why they'll rely on off-the-shelf solutions like unconscious bias training, which now HBR, you know, there's an article out that shows it's it's actually ineffective. In fact, it can be more damaging because you're bringing people in and you're engaging in what I call sort of marginalization porn, right, where you're sharing all these experiences of bias. You're, you know, talking about all these challenges people face as a result of that bias. And then you're saying it's unconscious and don't worry about it. So people yeah, leave the training. Yeah, it's almost forgiven. It's like, almost, yeah. yeah, so you're reinforcing the biases people have. And I always say, you know, there's a new research by my own university that's looked at this. It says we've got to move from unconscious bias to conscious decision-making, which is the applied place, right? So, yes, people like it because it disrupts their denial, but they don't do anything as a result. And that shows they still lack the understanding. The understanding is, hey, what can I do day to day in my job Mm -hmm. to apply this? How Mm -hmm. can I be a conscious decision maker? How can I think about my bias as it shows up in recruitment processes, as it shows up in day to day moments, you know, where jokes are made or where people are excluded or, you know, where there's sort of office banter that, you know, marginalizes people. How can I be a conscious decision maker? And so for me, my book talks a lot about this. Like it's actually split into three sections, awareness, Mm -hmm. understanding and action, because the aim is to get people to take action day to day, you know, make it the way employees behave, make it the way leaders lead and make it the way workplaces work. Like that's the aim yeah. with all of this. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I have a colleague who, um, when we were talking about, um, <clears throat> just the, the profile of our organization and things we wanted to see improve, um, he said, you know, I, I don't chime up as much in these conversations because who wants to hear from the middle-aged white guy? I was like, no, no, no. Like you're, you're the one that we need to get as educated as you can because you look a hell of a lot more like all of them than any of us do. And like that, that's the part where you need that engagement and that action versus, well, I'm just here to listen. And I I mean, sometimes you are just there to listen. It's very hard to be prescriptive in this space. And I, I guess it's why one thing that seems maybe uh, a misunderstanding about your approach is uh, this is such a complex topic, but your approach seems very um, simple and, and, obvious in some ways where you know, that's so like, funny. everybody says that so every i had a lot of male because i've spoken in a lot of organizations now and i've had a lot of male, male leaders say to me you know nobody can refute what you're saying because the logic is so clear it's just most people are like wow how did we not know this you yeah know, this is so obvious like inequality works because you have a prototype leaders encouraged to behave in ways that fit that prototype which are dominant assertive aggressive exclusionary you know willing to make work the number one priority and in turn that encourages all employees to behave in the same way mm-hmm. which creates entire workplace environments so day-to-day moments and exchanges that live up to that prototype. Mm-hmm. And so that is what creates cultures of inequality in workplaces. It's really simple. So the quickest way to fix that is to manage the day-to-day moments. 
to manage the behaviors, to have leaders role model their behaviors. Right. You know, leaders drive culture through their behaviors and culture ultimately affects performance of organizations. So there's this happy marriage. It's really simple. But I think what keeps all of this intact is denial because when leaders tell you it's a meritocracy, they're huh. kind of denying the Don Draper, right? And they're denying the barriers women face and that makes it impossible to solve. So that's why there is a formula for this, which is the awareness, understanding and taking action because if leaders are sitting there taking action but they're actually in denial that it's not a meritocracy, you're not going to solve it. And so for that male leader who's remaining silent, he's probably unaware of his privilege. He yeah. probably hasn't checked himself to think, hey, what are my different identities and how does my whiteness or my middle classness or, you know, my straightness kind of make it that much easier for me to fit in here at work in advance? Mm -hmm. And how can I importantly spend that privilege by speaking up and advocating and being an ally and talking about difficult topics like white privilege or, you know, like male privilege? And addressing those issues and share how I'm taking action to kind of remove the challenges they create for everybody else. You know, that's really what we're asking of, of men um, and I think of all women, but particularly white women. Yeah. And, and to not look at it as a checkbox. Right. I once had this conversation where <clears throat> I shared with a leader that, you know, you get to come into the office and think about diversity and inclusion. You get to have this on your list of things to do, hopefully every day, but at least every quarter. How are you doing across this? For those that are in marginalized groups, as soon as their feet hit the floor on the side of their bed in the morning, they know they're up against it. So it's there's that privilege of I get to carve out time to think about this versus this is the underpinning of my entire existence. Um, and that obviously is inside and outside of the workplace. Yeah, I mean, I always say, you know, the ultimate privilege is to be able to fix inequality um, you yourself never have to experience mm -hmm. and to be in that position to do that. And so, so powerful. Yeah. And so like for me, you know, leaders actually have the ultimate position of privilege because they get to decide how women are going to be treated. They mm -hmm. get to decide how employees are going to experience the organization, how men are going to value women. They get to, to call on that and decide it because they advance and reward people based on those behaviors. So for me, like what a position of privilege to be able to really be accountable for people's lived experiences of your workplace. Like mm -hmm. that's a great position to be in. And so for me, this is less about, you know, what initiative can we put in place or what's the quick fix, right? Ironically, I know my book's called The Fix, but, you know, what's the, <laughs> what's the quick fix for this? Because there's not a destination here. Like I actually draw parallels in my book with safety because I come from, you know, the energy and resource sector where safety is paramount, right? And so really looking at, in, in those organizations, safety is a lived experience. It's a practice, right? You walk down the stairs, there's a safe way to do that. You lift a box, there's a safe way to do that. You know, you go on an oil rig, there's a whole other set of safety protocols for that. It's a lived experience and the organization treats it as such. So when there's a safety incident, everything stops. And they look at what happened and they use it as an opportunity to learn. Mm. And people speak up and are encouraged for speaking up. They share their stories around safety. And that parallels is important because that's exactly how you create a culture of equality. You make it a practice. And so there's no end point in this. We look at metrics and representation mm -hmm. data, which we haven't touched on yet. But, you know, how the represent that's more in safety world, that's more indicative of an underlying challenge around the culture of safety so it's normally indicative of things not being managed very well but it's not the end point so the end point is actually to have a safe workplace right. culture every day and so it's a continual renewing right exactly to your point it's the way that leaders lead it's a practice like for me equality is really an invitation for leaders to lead because we're asking them to manage the lived experience of employees exactly in the same way they do safety 
Yeah. That, so let's talk a bit about the metrics and the measures. Um, yeah. You know, I think some people are shocked and, and you talk about kind of this gender denial, um, which may play a role in this explanation in terms of, you know, we know that, well, a lot of our listeners probably know, and I know you and I probably live and breathe this stuff, but that we're actually seeing a decline in the Fortune 500 CEOs. We're seeing a decline in women on boards. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of um, some gains that we've made actually being unwound. Um, and I think a lot of companies will look at diversity and inclusion almost as a math problem. Um, is that something that you uncovered during your research? Like, yeah. what are your perspectives on that? So I, I never used to have a strong opinion on it. And now I have such strong opinion on it that I have to check my ranting because I can rant. Oh, you can rant good. here. Yeah. And I just want to <laughs> prepare listeners. Um, so it's lazy in a short story. So when you just focus on the numbers, it's super lazy because what you're doing is you're looking at the scoreboard and you're ignoring the game, right? And the game is the day-to-day lived experience of inequality. When you cut copy-paste a woman into leadership positions, that makes her legitimacy questionable. And she has to, you know, my research has uncovered this and it's supported by other research that shows women have to then work so much harder just to be considered like acceptable, right? They're questioned by their peers, their legitimacy is undermined continually by employees who don't really believe they should be there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is this um, excludes men. So my research found, you know, the number one barrier to men's career advancement, according to men, is the advancement of women. And the reason for that is because you have these cut, copy, paste approaches, right, which makes sense because women are seen to be, you know, put into roles men don't believe they're qualified for. That creates this resentment, creates a lot of pressure for the women's in there, uh, who's in that role. So th- so men are saying she's taking my place she's and that's why place, I'm not right? advancing. And that's why, that's why I'm not supporting the diversity <laughs> inclusion initiative and that's why I'm not advancing. Thing. First of and all, talk about privilege, that that's my I space know, to begin with. I know. But <laughs> but to be fair, like, Sorry, you're right. I think that's what tokenism results in, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're not actually solving the problem. Like research finds when you have cultures of equality, men are twice as likely to rise to senior leadership positions. And women are, I think it's around six times more likely because mm-hmm. you're no longer advancing a small number of people that fit this outdated ideal, right? You open it up and you give everybody an opportunity to advance based on their capabilities and talents. Like right now, workplaces only work for that small number of people who are willing to live up to the Don Draper prototype. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, when you say that to men and you say, hey, actually, there's a lot to be gained by by this. But the, the, coming back to the point of targets and why they don't work. So then, you know, you've really got the system where nobody's winning. Right. And irrespective of whether you like targets or not, whether you believe they're necessary or not, the bottom line is they don't work. So studies show that when you have a woman, one woman in a leadership position, there's a thing called implicit quotas. So even if you don't have a quota in place, there's an implicit quota where you've hired one. And so it's like, well, now we have the minority representation, so we don't need to hire any more women. You know, you're much less likely to hire more women. We also find that when women are in leadership positions, they're less likely to be replaced by another woman, much more likely to be replaced by a white male. And the reason for that is because, again, we we question the legitimacy of the woman who's in that role, right? Women who are in CEO positions are 45% more likely to be dismissed, irrespective of whether performance is good or bad. And it's because we don't believe they should be in those roles to start with. And so none of this results in what I say, you know, is sustainable. It's not a sustainable change. The other thing that's frustrating, and I have to continue this rant, so you just have to No, go with me, I, I'm with you. Is when they're in Every the, word. <laughs> well, when they're in the leadership position, studies show that we the reason we put them there is we hold women and accountable for basically changing their inequality in the workplace, right? And 
the challenge with that is when women do then champion diversity and inclusion initiatives, other studies show that they're penalized. So they're seen as being nepotistic. They're seen as sort of focusing on on issues that don't really aren't core to business, right? And so their performance ratings suffer, their um, promotion opportunities are limited. And so when minorities support those initiatives, it actually penalizes them. So none of this works. So my thing is- But like, they're the ones that are being asked and tasked <laughs> the ones to do this. Yeah. to do it. So it's just this crazy system that we're in. So for me, I'm just like, you know, no good comes from quotas. And I've had, you know, female partners in major firms say to me, Michelle, you know, without these quotas, we're never going to get there because the men in our workplace are never going to get it. We just got to suck it up, deal with it, deal with the pain. And look, I would accept that if they worked, but they don't work. So mm. for me, you know, if you want to do your quotas and you want to carry on your representation, fine, focus on that, do that. But at the same time, focus on how do you create a work environment that works for everybody and particularly an environment where we've removed the barriers to women's advancement. Like, Let's focus on that. Let's yeah. focus on creating a right environment. So if you are bringing women in, they're you know on the receiving end of an environment that supports their advancement because you can have 90% women on your leadership team, but there's no guarantee they're going to be valued or treated with respect or, you know, have their contributions and talents and capabilities rewarded. Like, there's just no guarantee. And mm -hmm. the inequality that we're fighting is pretty simple. It's the fact that we don't value women and femininity in the same way that we value men and masculinity. That plays out in society and it plays out in workplaces. We value, you know, Don above everything else. And so that is what we need to shift workplaces from, having these prototypes to environments that are built more in terms of values. So and giving people different ways to show up in relation to those values, so organizations that you know, when it comes to values, value things like collaboration and value things like innovation and allow employees different ways to flex and demonstrate that. I mean, you can still have a workplace that values candid feedback or assertiveness as an example, but give people different ways to demonstrate that. Not everybody has to stand up like Don mm -hmm. and tell you across the table aggressively what they think. There might be, you know, providing an email feedback. There might be sort of softer ways to do that, like one-on-one. So, this is about giving people the freedom to show up differently in workplaces. I also, I, you mentioned feedback, and I also have a theory that I think particularly men in some cases really struggle giving direct feedback to women, and that also holds us back. So you've, you've talked, that's my own theory, I have not done any research, anywhere near the amount of research you've done on this, but um, you've talked a bit about these invisible barriers. Um, and I found that really interesting when I was reading the book because I was going through, you know, some of the barriers that we obviously see. You know, you've got you've got motherhood leaves. You've got, you know, those types of demands that happen outside of the home when we do become moms in terms of where um, society puts our roles and our expectations of our responsibilities there. What are some of the invisible barriers that you I mean, we've discussed a few of them, but are there, there ones that we've not yet covered? Yeah, look, I mean, I think some of the most typical ones you're going to see, I think they're all pretty typical, but some of the most typical ones that you'll see, um, well, maybe I'll back up a bit and first start by saying that women's careers unfold in very different ways from men's, right? So in the book, you know, men tend to walk down a much more linear path. Um, and, you know, this idea of a career ladder actually only works for Don. It doesn't really work for anybody else in the same way. Um, particularly if you're taking career breaks or you're changing careers, you know, the modern workplace and the modern career is very different from, from what it was, you know, in the 1950s. And for women, their careers are fundamentally different because they have to manage the integration of work and home life. So we see women's careers play out in sort of three distinct phases. And so what I've done in the book is really 
really map the barriers to each of those phases. Mm-hmm. And so early on, you've got sort of the the idealistic achievement phase where you go out there gung-ho, believing school life's going to match, um, you know, working life. And you have that expectation, right, that that's how it's going to be and that if you work hard, you can, you know, achieve. And we see young women coming into the workforce believing that inequality happens to some people, but it's not going to happen to them and it's not going to affect their careers, mm-hmm. right? And if it does, they can overcome it, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens is very quickly when they enter these workplaces, they're confronted with Don, they realize it's not a meritocracy, but what happens is the gaslighting. So they start to internalize it, right? Because the message from the workplace is it's you, you mm-hmm. need to change, you need to fix yourself, you need to fit in. And so those conditioned expectations, sort of the very first barrier you have to overcome as a woman when you're getting into the workforce. So I say, you know, if you have a daughter and you're listening to this, arm her with awareness. If you have a son, arm him. That's even more Mm -hmm. important, but we can get to that later. But arm your daughter with awareness, right? So she's not going to go through this internalization, this gaslighting, which is where we see that confidence drop off that I mentioned before. Yeah. Um, And then also, you know, very early on, you're going to encounter like the conformity mind where you've got the challenge of having to live up to Don by engaging in those behaviors, by being more masculine to fit in. But when you do that, you know, yes, you'll be seen as more competent, but you're going to be less likable. And you're going to be less likable mm. because to be likable, you have to conform to gender stereotypes that society holds, which for women is being more communal, nurturing, you know, meek and mild. Like that's the prototype for femininity, right? And so women have this trade-off between being likable, which is very important for career advancement, or being capable and competent, which is very important for career advancement. Right. So, so where do you index? Where yeah. do you end up, right? So it's this very, women have a very narrow way to show up at work and getting that right is next to impossible, which is why we see a lot of women leaders sort of more leaning towards conforming to Don, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of struggling with that navigation. So that's sort of early on just a couple of barriers. I mean, there's six in that first phase. But then as women transition into what I call the endurance phase, it's like this perfect storm, right, with motherhood. And Mm -hmm. it's generally when women may choose to have kids. Not all women do. Um, And also when most women are likely to encounter sort of management level positions. And at that point, you know, women encounter what are called negative gender norms to an extreme degree. So my first day as manager, I share the story a lot. You know, I walked into the kitchen at work and my boss threw a dish tile at me and said, hey, Michelle, you know, you're the only woman on the team. You should wash the dishes. (gasps) And that was day one, right? And all the men standing around me just laughed. Of course. And that was, um, and they all reported to me and I was the only woman on their team. And so then I was faced with this bind again of like, you know, if I say anything, I'm seen as difficult. If I don't say anything, I'm mocking my gender. Mm -hmm. I don't want to invite more of this, you know, by not saying anything. So I said, you know, well, you've got two hands. Why don't you do it? And I walked out and he said, that's why I hate working with women because they can't take a joke. And so that was day one and that was my boss, right? And so that's what negative gender norms are, right? They're Mm -hmm. those day-to-day microaggressions. I mean, studies really show that, you know, 60% of women experience microaggressions. We know that's compounded for women of color, right? So those day-to-day moments, those inequality moments like that, take a toll. And they They really affect your confidence. They build, yeah. And it leads you to believe, like, this is too hard. I'm never going to fit in. Maybe it is me. Maybe I can't take a joke. Like, why is everybody supporting this in silence? Because men have, you know, one of the barriers is that they're encouraged to remain silent about inequality. But the thing about inequality is simply witnessing it has the same detrimental impact as if you'd experienced it yourself. That is why your fight is my fight, right? That's why for the men who witnessed that and didn't say anything, they walked away feeling terrible because nobody likes to see their colleague being marginalized or discriminated against. Even if you're remaining silent and pretending to laugh along, you walk away feeling a bit yuck. Yeah. And so 
you know, that's why this really serves to benefit everybody. So that's normally what you encounter. And you see it play out with mothers where, you know, another story I had is a woman who was breastfeeding in her office and men in the office could have came up and stuck a picture of a cow on her, on her, you know, being milked on her door. And it's such a micro aggression, right? But I, just, that does not sound micro to me. <laughs> Maybe it's not, but, you know, like, because men will, men will explain that away, right? I'm joking. I mean, you even right. see this, like, yeah. you know, with um, presidential candidates. But, you know, it's like, it's just this whole we're joking, like you hear that all the time, right? And that gaslights women. And so that's the lived experience is horrible, right? And and that can happen before your mothers, but it normally happens around that management. And then when you become a mother, I mean, the book's just full of the challenges from the motherhood penalty where you're likely mm. to face, you know, 5% drop in wages per child on per average. Per child, just, while men get a boost. While men get a boost, you are likely to encounter penalties for reducing your work hours, so the part-time penalty, um, you know, and the irony is that mothers, there's a study by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis that shows that, you know, mothers are the most productive. They're, they mapped all workers yeah. over a 30-year period and found that mothers are the most productive workers and, in fact, mothers of two children. Um, and Yes! Yes! And, yes. you know, so, but workplaces don't support that, right? And right. so there's just huge challenges with that. And then one of the biggest things I learned is, you know, this, that there's no one glass ceiling, that there's lots of barriers women face throughout their careers. And so there's this assumption that, you know, if you break through and you become a leader, that it's going to be smooth sailing. And it's not. So my book shares the challenges women in leadership roles face from isolation because of in-group favoritism with male leaders, like you're the only woman on a team, so you're going to be isolated, to backlash. So they have their legitimacy questioned as leaders, which is unrelenting, where people don't support them. People don't really believe what they're saying. You know, they're not seen as legitimate leaders. Um, and you know, all of that creates challenges right through to like stereotypical typecasting where you label, so you're given a, a label like, you know, bitch or ice queen or queen bee, and then that's how people perceive you and you can't mm-hmm. move outside of that. And so that limits your effectiveness. So these are some of the barriers that show up throughout women's careers. And that's why I say, I think women are remarkable because we don't just go to work, you know, we achieve the impossible. We navigate a workplace that really doesn't support us every day. And, I, you know, that's why I implore leaders because I think, well, imagine what we could do if we, none of these barriers existed, you mm-hmm. know, imagine how If we could we channel could that energy into yes. actually producing. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I do... Think so. I I'm probably straddling the second and third phase in terms of my age and my career um, longevity, um, in terms of endurance, and then the final is the um, the contribution phase. So I identify with the contribution phase in terms of it being that phase where I'm giving back and I'm trying to make the path a little brighter for folks behind me, and. There's a double bind there, too, because, A, it's an effort that takes time and energy and dedication that may not be recognized in the same way that, you know, actually business would be recognized and elevated. Um, But, B, it's also then are you the squeaky wheel? Are you the handful? You know, are you the one that's always bringing these things up? So you have both this responsibility for the women or the women of color behind you and trying to make their way a little bit easier as they come up in their careers. And then you're still met with, you know, the unfortunate perceptions that can kind of hold you down. So these binds become very challenging. And and we talk a lot about, you know, office politics in the corporate world. And I mean, 
talk about navigating politics is, is that becomes a lot of our entire job. Yeah, and that's why, you know, one of the other barriers that I talk about for women leaders is this, is how they've moved from being tokens to trophies, right? And where we hold them up as examples of how quality has been achieved and then exactly to your point, hold them accountable for solving it. And we do that willingly because for us, we derive meaning from our careers by making a contribution and, you know, making that much easier for the next generation and engaging in that meaning, right, in our work. That's what women want. It's another difference. I mean, for men, they want that too, but they still feel the pressure to be the breadwinner, which Mm -hmm. isn't surprising because that's Don. But, you know, it's that meaning that's, again, I think what makes women remarkable because they want to make it easier for the next generation. I think the challenge with all of this in that process is that workplaces don't reward that. You know, to my point earlier, like you're going to be penalised if you do champion some of this stuff, um, which is why I see it as bending your privilege and why I hate putting the onus on women to do this. Like for me, my message, and it never used to be, is a bit of a journey, but my message is definitely for men. Like I have a whole chapter for men and on why they need to break up with Don and how that benefits them <laughs> and the different barriers they encounter, you know, in terms of not being able to explore their identities outside of work, in terms of having to live up to the breadwinner image, in terms of, you know, being silenced and bullied at work and the mental load this creates for men and how they're stigmatized if they engage in any feminine behaviors. I mean, for men, there's a lot of handcuffs. And what's great about that message is it helps me see men more clearly and how inequality doesn't serve them. But it then allows men to be empathetic and realize, well, you know, if there's six barriers for us and those are challenging, imagine how much more challenging it for women who've got 17, right? right? And so I feel like men are just, because they have fewer challenges, it's easier for them to champion this. And the thing is, again, studies show they're rewarded when they do. So I'm like, hey, this only serves you to kind of lead it, you know? Um, So for me, you know, I hate asking women to solve inequality. They have no hand in creating. And I think the aim is to really enroll men in this. Um, But in order to do that, we have to acknowledge how the system doesn't work for men. Yeah, I, I think that's really enlightening. And that was something that, you know, I think you can hear so much in leadership of, you know, how I think about things differently now that I have a daughter or I, you know, see this as, you know, the ways that I want to take care of, you know, my friend and elevate her and give her more opportunities, those types of things. But until they realize it's a problem for them, too, <laughs> they're they're not going to see that this is, you know, something that they should be as involved or as active in driving. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about earlier, um, and I do want to get to this. So you have children. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a six-year-old and a four-year-old, a girl and a boy? A girl and a boy. Okay. So I have a eight-year-old and a 12-year-old, also a son and a daughter. Um, and it's, I, I started my journey just to give you some background, um, Probably about four or five years ago, I was outside with my kids and I was telling my son or my husband about some women's event that I had done. And as I said it, my son looked at me and he said, mommy, you're sexist. All you do is women's stuff. And I said, oh my God, first of all, my like, you know, eight or nine year old kid at the time knew the term sexist. Um, But I was like, Okay, let me explain to you why there's, you know, these women organizations and these women's events and these women's trainings and programs, et cetera. And as I'm explaining this to him, my five-year-old daughter is listening. And I just had that moment of like, fuck, have I just burst her I can do anything bubble, right? That moment where she hears how disadvantaged she may be in her future just because she's a girl. 
Um, and it really has sat with me since that moment. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it now. It's really sat with me since that moment of I am raising a son and a daughter. I am living and breathing this stuff. And I need to make this message as positive and, you know, able to be achieved as I can for both of them. Mm. Um, and that seems to align a lot with what you're looking to do. And do you how know, you're thinking. it's so funny with parenting. It's the same solution. That's the thing about this stuff. It's not complicated, but we make it complicated because we don't actually want to do the work. The work is managing the moments. Mm-hmm. So exactly to your example there, that was a, in a quality moment or where you could step in and use it to educate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, parents, I think, I'm, I mean, I'm just going to say this, I hate speaking on behalf of all parents, but I think parents have a hard time having difficult conversations with kids, right, around mm. some of this stuff. I've had parents who want to soften it, parents want to change it. And I've not done that with my kids. So from day yeah. one, I've been like, hey, this is how inequality works. This is what gender inequality is. Yep. And it might be because I'm from the UN, you know, it's my last role. And we do this all the time with, you know, young kids. But for me, I was like, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about racism. We're gonna talk about yep. And there's a lot of great books out there, you know, like um, Little People, Big World, I think it's called. They have a whole series on, you know, all sorts of famous people and the challenges they've encountered. And it gives you an opportunity to use storytelling to kind of explain some of these ideas. But we talk about this all the time. And what happens is, you know, that continual process of educating your kids, of managing the moments, helps them to call out these things when they happen. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my daughter and I, it's something Gina Davis talked to me about with her Gina Davis Institute when I, I interviewed love on it. the Gina Davis Institute. Yes. Right. Like, she was saying something as simple as watching cartoons with your kids and saying, isn't it funny that the girls always seem to wear dresses even though they're climbing or, you know, they're um, mm. riding horses. Isn't it strange that the girls always save by the boy? Isn't that, you know, she could save herself. Or when you're in the store and you're buying things, isn't it strange that all the, you know, the girls' items in the toy store are pink and the boys are, you know, just calling it out. Yeah. And what I found is that's helped my kids to process the world around them because the thing is they're going to be exposed to this inequality whether you like it or right. not, right? Right. And so what you're wanting to do is arm them with awareness so when they encounter it, they can say, oh, that's not right. So now, like if my son the other day said, you know, you throw like a girl, right? And and so my daughter turned around and she goes, hey, you can't say that. <laughs> it's gender. Love it. So you're you've, like, or, yes. you've already got the pushback, right? right? Or when people say to my son, he can't play with dolls. That mm-hmm. he push, he's got the words for the pushback, right? No, it's like, no, girls and boys can play with any toys. So yeah. I think it's it's the continual, and that's the thing, there's no end point. Like, and they're great books. There's a lot of resources for talking about this stuff. Like there's some really, you know, great books for boys on gender inequality and what we need them to do as young boys. Um, so I really recommend, you know, using those resources, but just managing the moments. Like yeah. when they say those things, use yeah. it as an opportunity to educate. Yeah, it's and and it's very similar in my house where it's just not a choice. They're going to hear about this stuff all the time. And it's um, you can tell it sticks with them. I mean, my 12 year old now makes fun of me in a lot of ways for a lot of different things. He'll put my glasses on and be like, I'm Bethany Baines and I'm here to talk to you about breadwinning women. Um, But he he gets it. And my daughter will do very sweet things to my husband. Like she's to him a couple This was probably about a year ago now, but. You know, daddies can get jobs too. They can be teachers. They could work at stores, you know, and he's like, I had a job for 17 years, but she's really interpreting 
the world around her. She's she's seeing what's happening in the world, but also comparing it to what's happening in her home. My husband's retired and primary caregiving dad. So she's she's making those connections now and obviously as they get older. But I do think it's important to start that education because if not, we're unwinding what their assumptions as they're adults or as they're getting older versus challenging those assumptions as they're being made. Yeah. And and they will be made for them whether or not we like it. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And that's our job, right? Yep, Quality exactly. begins at home. So where are some, you know, what are some either inspirational companies or people in this space? I mean, you mentioned the Gina Davis Institute, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, we do a lot of work with them, actually, at Google as well. Um, are there other, any areas that you see who are doing this particularly well that you admire? Yeah, you know, there's organizations like LinkedIn, I think, are doing a pretty good job around mm-hmm. this. I've written a couple of case studies. You can check them out on Forbes and Huffington Post on Mike Gamerson when he was there and the work that he did around championing women. I think um, you also see organizations, um, it's often in pockets how they're doing it, but I mean, Ultimate Software is another one. I write it up in my book around a case study of how they're creating a culture of equality. Um, you know, and then you've got pockets of organizations where they're doing things that are really interesting, like L'Oreal has a supply sourcing strategy where they won't engage suppliers who don't have, you know, gender diverse teams and who aren't sustainable and, you know, aren't fair trade and who aren't supporting women and diverse and, you know, um, and so you're seeing organizations take action in terms of making it the way they do their business um, like that. So I think for me, it's really looking at a cross-section of what different firms do well mm-hmm. and around this work and really looking at what works like yeah. in a sustainable way. And if it doesn't involve leader action, then I'm not interested in it. So mm-hmm. I need to know what leaders specifically are doing. Like my LinkedIn case study, you know, I interviewed this SVP of their sales division because he was leading this and he was accountable for it. So I think there are organizations like that that are doing tremendous, um, tremendous work. But my whole message to everybody is you don't have to wait till your CEO wants you to do it. Yeah. You can start today within your own team, you know, by just really thinking about how you're managing those moments, how you're talking about inequality, how you're getting people to share their stories, yeah. how you're educating your team on what the barriers are and how you're holding people accountable for removing those challenges. Do you, do you worry that, well, I'll share that I worry that um, in society and certainly in corporate cultures that we are kind of becoming so afraid to say the wrong thing that we're not saying anything at all. Yeah, I mean, that's happening all the time, even the terms diversity and inclusion, right? We're seeing mm-hmm. that play out just in terms of what those terms mean, which is why I use equality. And I even had a company the other day say to me, Michelle, you know, people like the sort of term, they like to deal with meritocracy rather than inequality. So could we just change the language? I was like, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a qualitative researcher. Words matter. So mm-hmm. I'm specifically using those words and, and actually... Like where you're uncomfortable is where you need to lean in. Yeah. That's where you're going to learn and you want to understand why it is that you're uncomfortable. So if you're shifting in your seat, what I'm talking about, white privilege or, you know, any of these issues, racism, sexism, um, why workplaces aren't meritocracies, lean into that because that's where you have the work to do, right? Yeah. And I think for uh-huh. the challenge we have in workplaces today is people are obsessed with needing to be a good person. Look, you can be a good person and still be biased and still have some racist thoughts and still have some sexist ideas, right? And 
we need to make peace and let go of this need to be a good person and actually realize that we're all flawed. We're all on this journey. We all have um, biases. We're all in denial to some extent. We're all learning and give each other the grace to to learn, right? That's what this is about. And you can only do that yourself if you're prepared to lean into the discomfort, which is why I have no problem talking about race. I can do that all day long because I'm not afraid of somebody saying, hey, what you said was a bit racist because for me that's an opportunity to learn. It's like, okay, well, help me understand. Yeah. Um, and until we do that, you know, what we're what we're really creating is an environment in which, you know, being called racist or sexist is somehow more offensive than the racist or sexist behavior itself, right, which is crazy. So mm-hmm. we need to create these environments where it's safe for people to speak up and have difficult conversations. Yeah, I actually heard somebody do that on stage on a panel um, to a really large audience and basically said, if I say anything incorrectly, it was a panel about um, trans and gender identity. And she said, if I say anything inaccurate or anything offensive, I want you to correct me now and here so we all learn. And I thought that was such an awesome way. I mean, on that particular topic, but any topic, right? Like, don't come whisper in my ear afterwards or don't send me an anonymous comment. Tell me. Because I want to know. Not everyone's comfortable inviting that stuff. Uh, I love when people say, you know, give me some feedback offline. <laughs> it's like, come on, we got to get this happening live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I recognize it can be uncomfortable, but that's the point. I mean, this is what they say in yoga. It's the, the poses that you hate the most are the ones you actually need the most. So, like, you have to get into that stickiness and and we have to embrace that this is not going to be pretty to un- uncover. It's not pretty as it is. So the only reason that you're able to just keep moving forward is because of your privilege. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. Yeah. Lean in to oh, the discomfort. Right. And 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 lean in in a different, different terminology way. now. Absolutely. That was a, um, when that book came in, I remember so many of my colleagues were like, I am leaning in so far. I'm falling over. Falling over, yeah. <laughs> I'm literally Well, I mean, I have a it. terrible story about that, about a woman who was four months pregnant and her boss came up to her and he gave her a copy of Lean In. And he said, I've read this book and you need to do more now that you're pregnant to really demonstrate you're committed. And so she read it and she bought into the nonsense that is white feminism and um, lent in. And she got signed off at about six months by her doctor from work altogether because her blood pressure was so high and she was putting her baby at risk for overworking. Jesus. And so this is exactly the damage with this rhetoric, right? We ask women yeah. to do more and be more. Um, yeah. And the thing is, where's the lean-in for men? Like, where's right. that book? Like, right. It's just inherently misogynistic and and unhelpful to women and actually leads to situations like that, right? So yeah. it's just not a fan. I love what you're doing. I love Thank your you so message um, and the approach to really bring everybody to the table about this conversation. It's a very important one. Uh, I can't wait to see where this goes since it just launched yesterday. I'm so excited (laughs) for you. you. And thank you so much for making time to come be with us. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it's my my privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in for our conversation in Newsstand Studios at Rock Center. Lots more to come every Tuesday. So head on over to iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss anything. Please feel free to leave us a review to give us some direct feedback and also to help get the podcast in front of more eyes and ears. We really appreciate your support. Until next time.